HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Just a quick announcement before we get started. The episode of Back Bar that you're about to hear originally aired as Bar None in 2017. Cheers. I took out a notebook from the pocket of the coat and a pencil and started to write. I was writing about up in Michigan, and since it was a wild, cold, blowing day, it was that sort of day in the story. I had already seen the end of fall come through boyhood, youth, and young manhood, and in one place you could write about it better than in another. That was called transplanting yourself, I thought, and it could be as necessary with people as with other sorts of growing things. But... In the story, the boys were drinking, and this made me very thirsty, and I ordered a rum St. James. This tasted wonderful on the cold day, and I kept on writing, feeling very well and feeling the good Martinique rum warm me all through my body and spirit. I like to imagine Hemingway, middle-aged, bearded, midway through his second or third or ninth daiquiri of the day writing that in Cuba, A notebook and a pencil in hand, just like the young man in his memoir, reminiscing about the rum he drank back in Paris. It's easy when you read A Movable Feast and listen to his recollections about pre-World War II Europe and his first in a series of wives to see all the great writer's problems there in utero. Here is a deeply sensitive man, tormented by the masculine bravado of his age, a lonely man craving the approval of others, a womanizer hounding after love instead of sex. He's a delicate balancing act of a person, someone who can be thrown into crisis if pulled just too far in one direction of his nature or another. It's an attribute he still shares with a drink that's been known to share his name from time to time, the daiquiri, a drink that, like the Nobel laureate, can be set ferociously off kilter by going just a little bit too far off balance. I'm Greg Benson, and this is Bar None. This episode is brought to you by Dashable, an app that helps you find deals, save money, and earn rewards at local businesses in New York City. This week on Meet and 3, we head into the second part of our mini-series on global trade, where we talk about all things sweet, 
from chocolate and sugarcane to the cultural festival that accompanied the growth of the date industry in the U.S. They're using this romance and fantasy to say dates are exotic and you should consume them. I like to think of the food that we eat as archaeological artifacts in part because the history of humanity is in the stands in your produce market. It's not like other foods. We have very like personal feelings about chocolate. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the show. You're listening to Bar None, the podcast where we discuss the history of drinks and how what we drink shapes history. And today we're going to be talking about a drink that goes way, way, way back in the annals of cocktail history, to the point where its ingredients have been described as the holy trinity of Caribbean cocktails. Composed of lime juice, sugar, and rum, the daiquiri is a delightfully simple, uncomplicated drink, which means that like most things in this world that are simple and uncomplicated, it is remarkably easy to screw it up. So we're going to do something a little different on the show today. While we usually take you through a couple different riffs on our drink of the month, today we're going to do the Goldilocks tour of the three types of bad daiquiris you're liable, really, likely to find if you go searching for one today. And don't worry, we're going to tell you how to make a good one, too. Now the bar manager, um, Tyson Bueller, he, um, you know, I remember his first day and we were like, yeah, so make us your gangster daiquiri. And he's like, what? Like, what, oh my God, what does that mean? I'm like, make, make us your version of like the best version of the daiquiri that you would drink. Or rather, Jillian's going to tell you. Jillian Vose is the bar manager for Dead Rabbit Grocery and Grog in New York City. It's kind of funny, like when we'd hire somebody new... We'd like kind of scare them, be like on their first day, like, all right, make us your daiquiri, you know. <laughs> and uh, every bar has their gangster version of, of whatever, you know, that, that kind of fits to their style and their bar. Um, any bar manager or, you know, person who's in charge of the drinks, you know, is going to make versions of drinks that they feel are, are the best versions of those. But that's not to say that. Mo, Larry, and Shirley will all have the same idea of what the best daiquiri is. So it's just kind of, it really just depends on the person. You know, like uh, some people like sweeter daiquiris, some people like drier daiquiris, somebody like, some people like it right in the middle. The story of the daiquiri essentially begins with European contact in the New World. And that is a very long and very depressing story indeed. So let's start instead a little bit closer to home, when the Caribbean Holy Trinity finally found its nom de booze. The year is 1896. Europeans have now been on the Western Hemisphere for four centuries. A young singer named Grace Hall marries Dr. Clarence Hemingway, and Jennings Stockton Cox is out of gin. At first glance, that last one is nothing remarkable. Cox was just the latest in a long, long series of white guys living in self-imposed Caribbean exile, trying to squeeze every last dollar out of the tropics while constantly griping about the humidity in his journal. But one day, company from back home dropped in unexpectedly, and Cox, clean out of the most fashionable spirit of his age, decided he was going to improvise. He took rum, sugar, ice, and some limes from his garden, and swizzled the whole thing in a pitcher until it was ice cold. When that same recipe appeared 60 years later in Here's How, Around the World Bar Guide, it looked a little something like this. Two ounces Bacardi rum, one teaspoon sugar, juice of one small lime, shake with plenty of cracked ice until you are out of breath and your eyes begin to glaze, then strain into a chilled cocktail glass. It's worth noting that our boy was taking a little bit of a social risk by doing this. 
While gin had been a worthy member of the cocktail pantheon since such a thing was a thing, rum was perennially a drink of the lower classes, like a clear plastic handle at a fancy bottle shop, a hamburger in a world of steak. For proof, look to the fact that the Cox family lived up the road from the Bacardi headquarters in Santiago and received a gallon of the stuff every month for free. But social risk or no, the thing caught on, first with Cox's fellow Yankee expats and then with the local bartenders who were likely enamored with the utility and the simplicity of his creation. The mine Cox supervised for John D. Rockefeller, conveniently located in the town of Daiquiri, evidently didn't take up all of his time leaving him free to study horticulture, music, and the best ways to disseminate his creation to the world, or at least his tiny little Cuban corner of it. The drink took off, and then, 12 years later, he finally got around to naming the damn thing. Caballeros y amigos, we've been enjoying this delicious mixture for some time, but strange to admit, the drink has no name. Don't you think it's about time something was done to extradite us from this sad predicament? Legend has it that after this, nobody said anything. And then finally... I have it, men. Uh, let's call it the Daiquiri. And so, armed with a great name and the approval of white Anglo-Saxon society, this charming mixture was off and running. When a publicist named Jerry Swinehart was hired by the Cuban government to promote interest in the island's many fine tourist attractions, the first thing he seized on, probably because this was 1931, and if you listened to last month's episode on Prohibition, you know what that means, was the daiquiri. Swinehart spread the official Bacardi recipe to countless Havana bars, as well as some of the more openly secret Manhattan speakeasies, only to discover, in 1956, that he'd been doing it wrong the whole time. The recipe he'd been proselytizing, for want of better information, called for refined sugar. But in that year, an old drinking buddy of Jennings Cox has caught up with him to tell him that no, the secret ingredient this whole time, the one that added depth and body and that tempting little hint of molasses, was brown sugar, not white. Sadly, by that point, a rather popular United States senator by the name of John Fitzgerald Kennedy was drinking his daiquiris the wrong way, as were several million other people up and down the United States and across the Caribbean. Which brings us to bad daiquiri number one, the type that's just too sour. If you look at Jennings Cox's original recipe, the one teaspoon of sugar he used is already fairly small in proportion to the three quarters of an ounce or so of juice you can expect from a single lime. Replace the unrefined cane sugar or the richer demerara sugar with white sugar off the shelf at a grocery store, and you are left with an overly tart glass of acid that's probably going to be more heartburn than cocktail. With something that is only three ingredients, when the proportions are, are slightly are even slightly off, makes the biggest difference. Like it could be like a half teaspoon off of sugar and it could be, you know, too dry or too or too sweet. Good or bad, Cox definitely was not the first person with the brilliant idea to mix rum with lime and sugar. In fact, wondering where that idea came from is kind of like going to the Scottish Highlands and looking at the miles and miles and miles of nothing but sheep, 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 and wondering where in the hell they got the idea for haggis in the first place. Those three ingredients, sugar, lime, rum, were plentiful, and the fact that they taste pretty good together presented itself pretty early on. There's evidence to suggest that folks were mixing a drink called Planter's Punch in Jamaica as early as the mid-1600s and remembering the recipe for it with a handy little quatrain. One sour, two sweet, four strong, 20 weak. 
These all indicate the proportions of lime juice, sugar, spirit, and water necessary to mix the drink to spec. What our friend the gringo engineer did then wasn't necessarily invent anything totally new, is find a more satisfying and arguably much stronger ratio for something that had existed for centuries, and then name it. Cox's drink was a hit, catching on in such classy Havana bars as Sloppy Joe's, the San Carlos Club, and La Florida, just in time for the noble experiment to drive in thousands of thirsty stateside tourists. Imagine that scene for a second. The streets of this tropical island teeming with hordes of tipsy Manhattanites and sunbathing Chicagans, a new type of invading army the likes of which this island had never seen, and this is an island not short on experience with invaders. Does it feel a little incongruous? Because it does to me. What were they all doing there? What was rum doing there? How did all these weird westernized forces come together and decide that this island, this tiny little sliver just south of Florida, this is going to be our new playground? Well, if these folks with their tropical drinks and tanning oils were just the latest to stake their claim on the Caribbean, perhaps we need to take a look back at the invaders who got there first. Rum is, is a product of colonialism. It's a product of, of conquest. It's a product of the reaching out of European powers in the 17th century. Please join me in welcoming back to the program rum author and anthropology professor Fred Smith. Regular listeners will remember his voice from our Martini episode, and we were lucky enough to catch up with him again to discuss his area of expertise, rum and the Caribbean. I can't think of any other drink that has so much a reflection of modernity and at the same time, like you say, human suffering, because um, it was a commodity that sort of develops out of the sugar industry, you know, the desire, the demand for this luxury. As we all know, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue and wound up in what he swore until the day he died were the outer reaches of China. In fact, confronted later on with mounting evidence that his initial assessment was off by several thousand miles, the man was forced to come to the only logical conclusion. This theory that everyone had about a round earth just had to be incorrect. It probably looked more like a pear instead. Of course, we now know that what Columbus actually discovered were some 60-odd islands in between two entirely new continents, which turned out to be disastrous for the people that were already living there. One of his early journal entries kind of sums it all up. These people are very unskilled in arms. With 50 men, they could all be subjugated and made to do all that one wished. The Spanish, and then eventually the Dutch, French, English, and Portuguese, were drawn to the New World by gold. And once that petered out, along with most of the native population, they were right back where they started, in full possession of some of the most heavenly real estate on Earth and determined to suck it dry for money. This included the island of Barbados, a smidgen of land devoid of gold to mine and Native Americans one could force to mine it. It eventually fell to the British in 1627 with one simple instruction from their sovereign. Go forth and produce. That is, produce things that we can use at home. And lots of it. So the colonists tried cotton and indigo. They tried this one type of tropical mulberry, which apparently makes a killer yellow dye. They had high hopes for tobacco, but the hot and steamy climate yielded crops hailed as earthy and worthless back home, with someone else calling their product foul, full of stalks, and evil-colored. But then, they tried sugar. 
sugar got introduced to the world somewhere around Papua New Guinea sometime around 4000 BC. It's easy to transport by nature and takes root quickly in new environments, meaning that not only does it taste great, but it was tailor-made for mankind's first forays into global economy. It gradually moved west, first to India, then the Middle East, and then the Mediterranean. By the 15th century, Europe's big players were growing it on islands off the coast of Africa. But it was only after making the logical jump across the Atlantic that it became the prettiest plant at a ball attended by all of the world's most eligible empires. Barbados was the king. The homecoming king, I guess, if we're going to stick with the analogy. But whatever way you slice it, the amount of sugar they were producing was insane. From a modest population of 80 in the year 1627, Barbados ballooned to over 75,000 people 23 years later. That includes not only the planters who came down from England in search of a quick buck or pound or guinea or whatever the hell they were using back then. It's also the servants, the slaves, the infrastructure workers needed to keep such a massive operation churning, all in the service of a cash crop whose demand in England quadrupled between 1660 and 1700. In the words of James Drax, one such individual who came to Barbados in search of a small fortune, it is seldom seen that the ingenious or the industrious fail of raising their fortunes in any part of the Indies. It's interesting because the rum industry um, arises alongside the sugar industry, right? So, but it, it arises at a time when alcohol distillation is becoming more mainstream. Molasses was sold separately. It was used for gingerbread and, and things like that. But really, um, its value was when it was distilled. There's just one tiny problem with producing a lot of sugar, and that is that it produces a lot of waste in the form of molasses. Molasses is a thick, brown, sludgy liquid, a byproduct of sugar refining, and for a very long time, nobody could figure out what the hell to do with it. You couldn't refine it into more sugar. It's crazy heavy, so you can't ship it, and besides, nobody really wanted to buy it anyway. You could mix it with horsehair and eggshells and mush it into a mortar of sorts, but good luck building anything really tall out of it. You could also inject it into your urethra to cure syphilis, but with that tempting option on the table, it's really no wonder that most sugar barons just wound up hauling it out and dumping it. Thousands of gallons every year. After all, most refineries of the day reported that to make one pound of sugar, you'd also have to produce half a pound of molasses. And in some superfine grains, that ratio could increase to almost four to three. It's no wonder, then, that nobody really knew what to do with it all. It's good. That's not the question at all. But it is in a koshab. That means it is like a picture that a painter paints, and then he cannot hang it when he has a show, and no one will buy it because they cannot hang it either. In a koshable is a word Hemingway learned from his good friend and mentor Gertrude Stein, and it reminds me a lot of the predicament of our budding imperialists. Hemingway was writing, but not selling, and our sugar barons were producing, but not profiting, at least not to the amazing extent that they wanted to be. Hemingway finally took his burning question to Stein, why does nobody want this thing that I'm making? You mustn't write anything that is inaccrochable. There's no point in it. It's wrong and it's silly. So what do you do with something that is inaccrochable? Do you hide it? Hawk it? Throw it away? Or do you make it into something else? Alcohol distillation itself is sort of emerging around the same time that the sugar industries are taking off in the Caribbean, but gin, the English, for example, are still predominantly beer drinkers, 
ale drinkers, right? So distilled spirits haven't really become popular. Uh, they're still used for medicinal purposes, and it's only sort of in the 17th century that you begin to see um, the use of spirits in more convivial ways. I like to imagine that somebody, someday with a knowledge of distillation, was looking at a giant brown vat of molasses just sitting there, baking in the tropical heat. Such a sight would have been so ubiquitous that nobody would have given this particular pot of goop a second thought. But this individual, whoever he or she was, wound up staring at it, eyes drifting out of focus, looking at nothing in particular, when suddenly they start to notice tiny telltale bubbles floating to the surface, the calling cards of yeast and fermentation and alcohol. Hmm, I like to think they thought to themselves, I know what I can do with this. And of course, they couldn't possibly know it then, but they just changed the world forever. This episode is brought to you by Dashable, an app created to help you find deals, save money, and earn rewards at local businesses in New York City. Dashable will help you find the deals worth dashing for in a variety of categories, from food and drink to art, health, and pets. Support local businesses and save money when you download Dashable today. That's D-A-S-H-I-B-L-E. It's difficult to understate exactly how revolutionary the idea to distill molasses into rum really was. The world had whiskey and brandy and had for quite some time at that point, but both of those come from produce that can be used for other things. If you make your barley into scotch, you can't also make it into bread, and good luck eating those grapes once they become wine. But molasses was different. You can't live off eating it. You can't plant it in the ground and grow more molasses for next year. It's waste. In fact, it's waste from an already extraordinarily profitable industry, so finding a way to monetize it was earth-shattering. Imagine that tomorrow, someone found a way to take the carbon emissions from your car and turn them into a delicious orange sorbet. Think about what would happen to the auto industry, and for that matter, to the orange sorbet industry. Except that that wouldn't even paint an accurate picture, because you'd have to imagine that cars were driving a new golden age of imperialism, and that orange sorbet was a powerful intoxicant capable of numbing all of us to the stupefying pain and horror we'd need to endure in the face of mounting quotas from the insatiable CEOs of Subaru and Chevrolet. I mean, it's certainly a tool of oppression. Alcohol is always, there's always an ambivalence about alcohol, right? So on the one hand, it's a tool of domination, right? So planters doled out huge amounts of rum to the slaves on their plantations, right? This was a way, in their mind, to sort of pacify them, to keep keep them happy, keep them cheerful. And so rum was part of weekly rations. It was given out as rewards uh, an incentive system. Uh, it was given out as a, a prophylactic against uh, colds and illnesses. Uh, but at the same time, you know, giving too much rum, uh, alcohol makes people do unpredictable things. And so... Uh, there's this ambivalence. On the one hand, it's a tool of domination, but also, um, on the other hand, it's a tool of resistance. Rum first pops up in print in the 1650s. There's no concrete evidence about where that name came from, but we do know that it was called Kill Devil for a while. 
Whether that was because it killed the devil inside you or brought forth murderous demons is tough to say, but it probably didn't get the name from its delicate palate and playful finish. Even the name rum has some pretty raucous connotations. Again, nobody's quite sure, but most historians agree that the monosyllabic rum is either a shortening of rum bullion or rum bustion, which are two very Anglo-sounding synonyms for a drunken brawl, and boy were there plenty of those. While the richer Barbadians drank port and brandy, the rest of the islanders were consuming an average of 10 gallons of the stuff per person per year, causing Captain Thomas Walluck of the British Royal Navy to make this observation in 1708. Upon all the new settlements the Spaniards make, the first thing they do is build a church. The first thing ye Dutch do upon the new colony is build them a fort. But the first thing the English do be it in the most remote parts of the world or amongst the most barbarous Indians, <laughs> is to set up a tavern or drinking house. By 1655, roughly 900,000 gallons of rum were being produced on Barbados each year. And yet at the turn of the century, they were still only shipping 200 or so gallons back to England. Now, granted, a lot was probably being lost to smuggling and piracy, but odds are good that most of the remaining 899,000 gallons were consumed right where they were produced. Barbadians, as I mentioned, were drinking the stuff like it was going out of style, which leads us directly into bad daiquiri number two, the type that's just too sweet. Forget for a second that most daiquiris you'll see today are going to be one of two types, strawberry or banana. Put aside the fact that the last time you saw one, and I'm gambling here, but I bet it was one of those weird plastic bong-shaped yardarita things they sell at baseball games. And hey, no judgment. Those do hit the spot. But think for a second what would have happened to this drink if Jennings Stockton Cox had put way, way, way too much sugar in it, so much that it drowned out the rum and the lime juice and all he was left with was a flabby saccharin mess. Gross, right? Use too much of one ingredient, say sugar, for example, and this well-balanced, delicate thing becomes unstable and more than a little bit undrinkable. It's so simple that it's very easy to screw up. So, you know, a lot of times I know, um, you know, a lot of bar owners or, or, you know, bar managers when they're training or, or maybe staging somebody for a new job, um, they'll ask them to make the simple things like a Negroni, like a, a daiquiri especially, and if they can't understand the balance of those three things, then, then they probably have a lot of work to do. Too much sugar-causing problems. I wonder if this example is repeated anywhere else in history. Oh, right, the entire Western Hemisphere. See, sugar was already a powerful industry, but the discovery of rum made it self-funding, a sort of perpetual economic motion machine. And this is good for a lot of reasons. First of all, the people growing that sugar got filthy, stinking rich. There's a famous anecdote of King George III nearly being forced off the road by a Jamaican sugar baron riding through London in a carriage far more ostentatious than the king's. Sugar? Sugar? Hey, all that sugar? How are the duties? Hey, how are the duties? He sounds pretty pissed, right? But it wasn't just the Caribbean that reaped the benefits of all that sugar. A set of colonies on the eastern coast of North America that you may have heard of began purchasing molasses on the cheap from refineries further south turning rum distillation into a tidy little cottage industry in places like New England and the Mid-Atlantic. But mostly, there was the technology. If there's one truism of human history, it's where money goes, science follows. The value of rum and sugar, and perhaps more importantly, the will to corner the market on these hot commodities, 
drove countless naval and exploratory innovations, leading to, among other things, more reliable clocks, maps, telescopes, and a modern sense of longitude. As weird as it sounds, the prime meridian is a direct result of distilled molasses. But it's a sad fact that progress and misery also seem to go hand in hand. Where the Europeans thrived, the natives suffered, and when they were all but wiped out, the invaders turned their eyes to Africa in search of a new labor force to work their fields and man their distilleries. Progress, like rum, had one foot in the modern era and one foot in its brutal past. It's got one foot in this antiquated medieval world, and it's got one foot in the modern world, right? So distillation is a technological advance uh, in alcohol production. Uh, sugar production is a, a sort of agro-industrial process. Uh, it's part of this broader sort of capitalist system. It's product, part of this broader sort of mercantilist trade. Um, it's connecting all these disparate parts of the Atlantic world. Um, but at the same time, it's being produced using an antiquated system of slave labor, and it's supplying traders who are selling this to Native peoples, uh, incorporating them into this broader Atlantic economy, uh, but also having a devastating effect on the Native peoples themselves who are consuming it. There's no way one can or should sugarcoat the monstrous things perpetuated in this era by people in the wrong. But let's look, for now, at one of the few guys from this time period who got something right. That guy was Edward Vernon, the namesake, by the way, of George Washington's future home at Mount Vernon. And the thing he got right was his elegant solution to a bureaucratic nightmare known as the tot ration. Back in Vernon's day, circa 1740, it was customary to pay men in his majesty's service a portion of their wages in alcohol. It was called a tot ration, and it posed a couple of problems. Problem number one, liquid is heavy. Originally, British sailors got paid in beer at the rate of a gallon per sailor per day. Multiply that out by roughly 18 to 30 sailors on a ship at sea for two weeks to a month, and you have a hell of a lot of liquid you need to take on board with you. Problem number two, as any modern-day craft beer expert in a cardigan will happily tell you, beer goes bad. Here's a fun exercise. Do a quick Google search for the term, why are growlers bad, and listen to all the neckbeards out there talk about oxidation and off flavors, and then imagine a British Navy ship, about 200 years before refrigeration was invented, stuck in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean for a month and surrounded by nothing but stinky, sweaty Englishmen. It's not exactly consistent with the Craft Beer Association of America's standards of quality. What to do? Well, they tried wine, but if you recall our vermouth episode, you'll remember that probably didn't work much better. But then, sometime in the 1700s, they tried using rum, which solved the first two problems and, of course, introduced another one. While the ration shrank in volume from a gallon a day to an eighth of a pint, the booze therein increased about 19 times in strength. On top of that, sailors got in the habit of banking their rations for a week for an all-out rum bonanza on day seven. And this means that you have ships, navy ships, mind you, sailing all over the globe manned by people who are perpetually shit-faced on a rotating basis. Here's a fun exercise. Take a pint of rum and uh, actually, you know what? Don't, don't do that. History's already showed us that it's a really bad idea. 
Enter into this rum-soaked arena Edward Vernon, a clean, well-educated bloke who picked up the nickname Old Grogram thanks to the coarse Grogram wool cloak he was fond of wearing. Vernon easily recognized the problem of a fleet of Englishmen floating around the world in a state of constant inebriation. His solution was an obvious one. You water it down. His new ratio of one part rum to four parts water was still strong enough to kill any bacteria while making sure the sailors got their due, just not enough to get wasted on. Which, of course, paved the way for yet another problem. Sailors grumbling about the man cheating them on their hard-earned booze. And the solution, again, was obvious. Take the rum, mix it with gunpowder, and just light the whole thing on fire. See, alcohol won't burn at any less than about 57%, which means that if the mixture went up, the rum they were using was legit, and the sailors had proof that they were getting their due. Here's a fun exercise. Take a whole bunch of gunpowder and some rum, and <laughs> I'm, j I'm just kidding, but seriously, don't, don't, don't do that. Anyway, after the fun demonstration with the rum and the flames and the stingy crewmen, the ship's purser would add a little lime and sugar to cover the taste, and the sailors could then enjoy a very, very rudimentary daiquiri. The modicum of vitamin C this provided also had the salient effect of preventing scurvy, and even though the British didn't realize that at first, it certainly helped the nickname Limeys to stick in the collective global consciousness. Meanwhile, the British continued to grade most of their distilled spirits on a scale of 57.15% being equal to 100 proof, while Vernon and his grogram cloak, and some logistical maverick now tragically lost to history, gave us another fun entry in the nautical lexicon. I guess it was only a matter of time before someone took the captain's nickname, Old Grogram, and turned it into Old Grog Rum which means that grog, that piratical favorite from time immemorial, is really just a warmer, waterier cousin of the favorite beverage of Jackie O and JFK. Yar. Obviously, at this point, we can see that it doesn't take a genius to realize that sugar, limes, and rum taste pretty good when you mix them together. But what does require skill and artistry and dedication is finding the exact balance where it tastes just right. In Constantino Ribaliagua Vert, the daiquiri found someone with the skill and the dedication to elevate it into art. His studio was a bar in downtown Havana made from a converted Spanish shop house known as La Florida. A souvenir booklet published in the 19-teens contains the recipe for all four of Constantino's famous daiquiris in Spanish, with moderately bastardized translations in English, and this endlessly charming paragraph to kick it all off. As the modern cocktail is said to be the poetry of liquor, its essence and fragrance is as that of a subtle flower. The delicate crystal of the cocktail glasses enables you to enjoy all the good that exists, leaving the hardship of daily life forgotten. The scenery is unsurpassed beauty. Pain is overlooked. Love is sweeter and tenderer. The cocktail is spiritualistic. Constantino's recipes range from staunchly traditional to just barely slightly non-traditional. He created four signature daiquiris, but rather than name them, he preferred to just assign them numbers, like Latter-day Pollock paintings. The man even had words for the four different types of ice these drinks required. Perhaps his splashiest contribution was the daiquiri number four, which took the Holy Trinity and put the whole thing through that revolutionary wonderkind of the 1930s kitchen, the electric blender, resulting in the world's very first frozen daiquiri. But for all of this, Constantino toiled in relative obscurity for several years, which by all accounts was just fine by him. 
This man, who was frequently described as Saturnine, wasn't after accolades or press. In fact, he didn't even really drink. He just wanted to tend his bar, open to close, every single day of the week the way he wanted to tend it. And he did. That is, until one day in 1939, when a boisterous middle-aged author moved to Cuba. Always do sober what you said you'd do drunk. That will teach you to keep your mouth shut. Yeah, that one. It wasn't long before Hemingway made himself a home away from home away from home at Constantino's bar. And it wasn't long after that that Constantino's famous regular turned his humble little rum shop into a famous bar. Once it became known that the author of The Sun Also Rises was a regular at La Florida, people would come from miles around to see if they could catch a glimpse of him in his favorite corner, crushing daiquiris. His record, according to him, was 15 doubles in one day. By all accounts, Ernest Hemingway was a model regular. Aside from the obvious bump in business that his mere presence provided, he was quiet, respectful, and purportedly a very good tipper. Even on his record day, which again, let me say it, was 15 doubles in one sitting, he and his drinking companion remained on their feet the entire time. But then there was that thing he did that wasn't so great, and sadly it's the thing for which mixological history remembers him the best. While his favorite bartender, Constantino, may have preferred Pollock's anonymous naming technique, his style with drinks was decidedly more pointillist. Nothing out of place, nothing too flashy, every single detail imbued with a tremendous amount of thought in the service of a broader whole. While Hemingway, on the other hand, was all Pollock. There was method, sure, but it was in favor of boldness and boisterousness and explosivity, and thus, the dubiously famous Hemingway Daiquiri. Four ounces white Cuban rum, one ounce fresh lime juice, one teaspoon maraschino liqueur, three teaspoons grapefruit juice, four and a half cups crushed ice, no sugar, no fancying. Hemingway's daiquiri, or the Papa Doble as he was fond of calling it, was a riff on Constantino's third. While the original is a pleasing balance of the big three, plus maraschino and grapefruit juice, Hemingway's version omits the sugar entirely, doubles the rum and lime, and triples the grapefruit juice. This leads to a tart, hot, imbalanced mess, making Hemingway's beloved special bad daiquiri number three, the type that's just too boozy. While Constantino was an artist without a care in the world for fame and fortune, Ernest Miller Hemingway was not. He was a genius. There's no doubt about that. But he was a genius whose personal life was almost as interesting and almost as integral to his work as the work was itself. Larger than life and brimming with contradictions, the man had a quiet soul paired with a pathological need to be the loudest personality in the room. He was both a fighter and a lover, and tragically, he was a raging alcoholic. And alcoholics do not make good drinks. I'll say it again. Fifteen doubles in one sitting. They're not particularly interested in balance or which one of four different varieties of ice they're going to use. When they mix drinks, people like Papa Hemingway have other things in mind. It's easy to dismiss what he did to Constantino's daiquiri as unconscionable. 
Every bartender worth his or her salt has at least a half a dozen stories of a drink near and dear to their heart being butchered by special requests. And it's particularly painful once you realize that the phrase Hemingway daiquiri carries more weight today than daiquiris one through four combined. But the poor men just couldn't help themselves. Hemingway had a disease and anxiety and crippling wounds from an African safari and all the pressures of fame. While Constantino was always the consummate host forever willing to measure his darlings against the satisfaction of his guests. That was how the two men lived and ultimately how their stories ended. Hemingway never found the balance in his life that he needed so desperately, spiraling further and further into anxiety and depression and finally suicide. Constantino and La Florida, on the other hand, kept right along the same way they always did, fame or no fame, papa or no papa. If you go to La Florida today, it will look pretty much the same as it did back then. The bartenders in Regency garb, the large mirror over the bar, and a life-size statue of Papa himself, seated in bronze in his favorite corner at the end of the bar. But sometimes, when I was starting a new story and I could not get it going, I would sit in front of the fire and squeeze the peel of the little oranges into the edge of the flames and watch the sputter of blue that they made. I would stand and look out over the roofs of Paris and think, do not worry, you have always written before and you will write now. All you have to do is write one true sentence, the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. Balance is a critical thing in life, in drinks, in colonial governments, in everything. There are so many factors pushing and pulling and tugging that it's critical to find a happy medium somewhere in the middle where everything is just right. I think that's the truest sentence that I know. So to that end, what the hell makes a balanced daiquiri anyway? We looked up Jillian's ideal recipe, and it looks a little something like this. Three quarters of an ounce of El Dorado three-year rum. Three quarters of an ounce of Florida Cana extra dry white rum. Half an ounce of Banks Five Island white rum. One ounce of fresh lime juice and half an ounce of cane sugar syrup. Shaken and served with a lime wedge. And holy crap, is that a lot of ingredients, but we tried it, and I swear to God, it's one of the best single things I've ever tasted in my entire life. And it's not because it has three rums or because it uses cane sugar instead of white sugar or brown sugar or whatever type of sugar you want to use. It's because it's balanced. There's not a single solitary element of that drink that's not exactly where it needs to be, informing and reinforcing all of the others. And yes, that is a metaphor. And yes, I could spell it out for you. But where would be the fun in that? Better to say swing by your favorite bottle shop and try it out for yourself. This episode of Back Bar was researched, written, and directed by me, Greg Benson. Keegan Cassidy and I produced while Ryan Laney scored, edited, and mixed our show. You can find his work at ryanlaneymusic.com. Back Bar is powered by Simplecast. Our actors today were Carolyn Kashner, Elliot Kashner, Colin Connor, Francesca Chilcote, and Keegan Cassidy. And a special thanks to our guests, Jillian Vose and Professor Fred Smith. Thank you so much for listening to Heritage Radio Network. 
Food Radio is supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Follow me on Instagram at 100proofgreg. That's 100 with numbers, not letters. And you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. HRN is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Do you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, like, say, this one right here. Tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. We'll catch you again in two weeks for the cursed twins of the culinary world, the Bloody Mary and brunch. So be sure to like, subscribe, do all that good internet stuff, and we'll catch you right back here for more on history's favorite drinks and how what we drink shapes history. Cheers. Cheers.